Welcome to Knowledgeable Aging. I'm your host, Jason Kotar. Joining us today to talk about elder, elder abuse, is this the crime of the 21st century, is Paul Greenwood. Newly retired Deputy District Attorney Paul Greenwood was a lawyer in England for 13 years. After relocating to San Diego in 1991, he passed the California bar and joined the DA's office in 1993. For 22 years, Paul headed up the Elder Abuse Prosecution Unit at the San Diego DA's office. In 1999, California Lawyer Magazine named Paul as one of their top 20 lawyers of the year in recognition of his pioneering efforts to pursue justice on behalf of senior citizens. He has prosecuted over 750 felony cases of both physical, sexual, emotional, and financial elder abuse. He has also prosecuted 10 murder, cases, 10 murder cases, including one death penalty case. In March of 2018, Paul retired from the San Diego DA's office to concentrate on sharing lessons learned from his elder abuse prosecutions with a wider audience. In October of 2018, Paul was given a Lifetime Achievement Award by his former office. Paul now spends much of his post-retirement time consulting on elder abuse cases and providing trainings to law enforcement and adult protective service agencies across the country and internationally. He is also involved as the Criminal Justice Board member of the National Adult Protective Services Association. Woo, Paul, how are you doing, sir? Fine, thank you, Jason, good to see you. You as well. Um, so before we get started, what I'd like to do is I'd like to get into a little housekeeping. For those of us that are joining today, please feel free to put your questions into the box and we will do the best we can to answer those at the end if we have time. Also in the handouts is an excellent read by Paul. I encourage you to download it and read that as well. So Paul, I'd like to get right into it. I know a little bit about you. The UK to San Diego. Now, did you just make this move because of the weather? <laughs> no, it's a true love story. Um, I had been traveling after I finished my law degree in England in 1973, uh, traveled all around America in August of 73, and I walked into, on a Sunday morning, a Baptist church in San Diego, didn't know a single person there, and literally the only empty seat was sitting next to this gorgeous young lady, sat down next to her, and five years later, she became my bride, and we moved back to England uh, after the honeymoon, and I became started my practice as a lawyer there, and 13 years later, my wife was very homesick, uh, and she missed the weather, <laughs> and so with two young children, age 10 and 4, we packed up everything and moved to San Diego in 1991. 1991. Very good. So I'd like to get to the basics if we could. Can you define what elder abuse is and why it varies from state to state? And that's the problem because there is no uniform definition in the United States because, you know, we have 50 states with different laws. So, in fact, in some states, it's not even referred to as elder abuse. Uh, some states refer to it as vulnerable adult abuse, and they don't even define vulnerable adult by age. Whereas in California, where I prosecuted for over 22 years in elder abuse, we do have a standalone statute which defines an elder as anybody over the age of 65, and therefore the types of abuse uh, that are impacted on an elder, such as physical, financial, and neglect, emotional, sexual. And so all those various types of abuses are encompassed within that statute. Now, uh, there are other states that define uh, elder by age also, but sometimes they refer to the age of 60, or in a couple of states, Kansas and Colorado, it's 
70. Now, being somebody who's now 68, I prefer the Kansas and Colorado definitions than the California <laughs> definitions. <laughs> I understand. So if we could take a little little step back. So what got you into the elder abuse? And obviously, uh, quite a career of 22 years. What got you into it? Well, you know, I didn't choose it. And that was the remarkable okay. thing. I didn't even know elder abuse as a crime existed. I, I had been in the office, uh, the DA's office, for three years. I was prosecuting your typical street crimes, like most uh, prosecutors, learning the ropes. I was doing jury trials, you know, doing robberies, burglaries, drug sales, you know, the typical sort of food for prosecutors, when suddenly I get a call from the elected boss, the, the actual district attorney, and said, Greenwood, come to my office right now. And I go, oh dear, what have I done, you know? <laughs> so he calls me in and he says, I've just had a very angry phone call from Adult Protective Services. I said, well, who are they? He says, I don't know, but they're very angry. I said, what about me? He says, no, no, no. He says, they're just angry at our office. I said, why? He says, because they're telling me that we are ignoring a huge escalating crime called elder abuse. So then I said, well, what is that crime, elder abuse? He says, I don't know either, but you're about to find out because I've just appointed you as the new head of a brand new program called Elder Abuse Prosecution. And that was the start of it, Jason. Um, you know, I was thrust into this arena knowing nothing about it. Now, I have to also tell you that typically in most large prosecutor offices, someone like myself would go into a specific uh, type of department prosecuting one type of crime for no more than three to five years maximum. So okay. you become a gang prosecutor for five years, you do homicides for five years, you do sexual assaults for five years, you know, you just rotate. Well, here I was thinking, oh, I'll just do it for three years because it doesn't sound to be a very attractive type of assignment, how right. wrong I was. And so it then became my career for the next 22 years because what I found, Jason, was that I was entering into a world that had never been discovered before by other prosecutors. And I felt a little bit like an explorer uh, going into the intrepid, uh, learning from my own mistakes, but finding a passion in all this. Right, and so the types of elder, elder abuse cases you prosecuted were what? Well, they varied. Um, and obviously the, the most common form was uh, both physical abuse, slapping, pushing, hitting, but then also neglect by a caregiver of an older adult. And then there were uh, the, the large majority of cases also involved some form of financial exploitation. And what was interesting was that a lot of these cases involved various types of uh, abuse. So you might get a case of physical abuse where as you investigate that abuse, which led to injuries, you also uncover financial exploitation. So it wasn't a one-size-fits-all. Correct. And, you know, it, sometimes it led you down all kinds of paths. And in fact, uh, sometimes, sadly and tragically, it, it would also um, lead to, to uh, homicides, which previously had been looked at as natural deaths. Interesting. Uh, what are the type, who are the, the likely victims and perpetrators of elder abuse? Well, it's, inter it's very interesting that with physical abuse cases, I can actually tell you a profile of who my number one perpetrator was. 
and it was a son. And I can tell you who the classic victim was, his widowed mother. And so you've got this, I would say, 46-year-old son who's living at home with his 79-year-old widowed mother. And why is he at home? He's either one of three types of sons. He's either single and he's never, ever left home, or he is divorced and come back to live at home, or he's just got released from jail. And in every single case, pretty much, th this son was lazy. And whenever I would talk to his mother, I would say, how come your 46-year-old son isn't working? Ah, she says, he tells me he has a medical condition. And I said, let me guess, he's got a bad back. And she said, well, how did you know? I said, it's obvious. It comes from sitting on your sofa playing video right. games all day long. Now, I know I'm being a little cynical there, but it's true. And, and all these sons had an addiction. It was either drugs, alcohol, or gambling. And because they were unemployed and because they needed money to feed their addictions, what did they do? They stole their mother's jewelry. They pawned it. And when mother would find out, they would have this massive argument and there'll be a big confrontation. And then what would happen? He would punch her right there in the face. And then she'd end up in the ER room. And that's how we would discover the case because of her black eye and her injury. And then we would uncover the financial exploitation as well. So that's the typical profile of a physical abuser. Whereas on financial exploitation, I don't have a profile for you okay. because okay. unfortunately, um, there are so many types. There are professional uh, predators, you know, within your own prior, prior industry, realtors. Within my industry, lawyers. There is um, CPAs, bookkeepers, um, all kinds of people, uh, licensed insurance salesmen. Uh, and then you've got the predators out there online who are uh, operating in the shadows and anonymously who are also taking advantage of the uh, of the elderly the typical who brings cases to you generally i mean was it is it the senior themselves the older persons or is it family member how do, how do these cases come to you well that was the big challenge jason because when i started in january of 1996 you know i was given my marching orders go prosecute elder abuse right and the, and the typical way that cases came to our office through a drugs case a robbery case a burglary case was always through the local police department Right. They would investigate because okay. they get the 911 call. They they investigate the case. They bring you a nice a manila folder to the DA's office and drop it on your desk. That's how it used to be. But suddenly, I was faced with this dilemma. No law enforcement was bringing me any cases. So for seven months, Jason, all I did was go around my county trying to stir up business and trying to convince detectives and police officers that it was worth their time to investigate cases where there was an elderly victim and it and it really surprised me and so i would go around saying why don't you have these cases why don't you bring them to me and this is what they told me jason they said oh greenwood you don't want to deal with these elderly people i said why not you know what they told me elderly people make ineffective witnesses in the courtroom and i would say to them but that's not your problem that's my problem let me deal with it. And so I would just basically cajole, encourage uh, the cops to go out and bring me these cases. And eventually, by the end of the first year, 17 cases uh, were processed.
And then by, by the year 2018, by the time I finished, we were probably averaging about 450 cases a year. So to go back to your initial question, most of the cases do come through traditional sources now, law enforcement. Okay. But, they, but very rarely is it the victim who is the one who makes the call to the police. It's typically a family member, a neighbor, a mandated reporter who suspects it because the victims too often are either too embarrassed or too afraid to make that initial report. Yeah. Now, as far as advice that you can give out, so if you have someone that suspects an elderly family member, a neighbor, or a friend is being exploited, what, what can you tell them? I can tell them this. The worst thing they could do is say to themselves, it's none of my business. You know, I've I, I got to stay out of this. That is the worst thing because I have seen too many tragic results of where people stayed silent and allowed the abuse to get worse. Um, there are ways in which a neighbor, a friend, a relative can make a call to their local social services. Typically in every state it's called adult protective services. Okay. Make that call and in most cases, you can be anonymous. You don't have to give your name or a location. You can just say, I'm very concerned about this person. This is what I believe is happening. And let the social services department then make an unannounced visit to the home of that elder and, and make their own inquiries. Now, okay. if you are what is called a mandated reporter, and most states do have categories of mandated reporters, uh, such as obviously police officers, paramedics, doctors, nurses, caregivers, then they have a duty to make that report and they cannot be anonymous. All right. Um, it, you had already kind of touched on this as far as the police department, some of the challenges that you saw early on. So I, I wanted to kind of touch, what other barriers or challenges did you have when you first started as opposed to when you left the office, you know, 22 years later? Yeah, good question because I spent a lot of my time just working with police departments and after that initial reaction of they would make ineffective witnesses in the courtroom, we got over that one. And then the next problem that I faced was that when somebody would call the police department and say that they believe that there was uh, something going on with financial exploitation of an elder, typically the responding officer would say this, ah, I'm not so sure that's a crime. I think that's more of a civil matter. You need to go talk to a lawyer. So I hear this a lot from the public because I, I made a lot of public appearances. I would go on radio, I'd go on local TV, I would do articles in the newspaper. And so people got to know that there was a point person in the prosecutor's office that they could call. So they would call me and say, Mr. Greenwood, I tried to make a police report, but they told me it was a civil matter. So I spent a lot of my time going around again to the police department saying, don't say that. Because, and I would try to say this as tactfully as possible. I say, look, you were trained to do certain things which I could never do. I don't know how to handle a gun. I don't know how to put handcuffs on a person. I, I don't know how to do a lot of things that you were trained to do very well. But my training tells me what is a civil matter and what is a criminal matter. You are not qualified to say that to a member of the public. So please don't say that. Take the report and send it over to me and let me figure out whether or not it's just civil or whether it's criminal. 
because as I would go around the country giving trainings, Jason, this is the number one frustration that I heard from social services departments everywhere I went. They say, Mr. Greenman, this is what we're finding. We're up against a brick wall. The police will not take a report when they suspect it's a financial matter involving an elderly victim. Because too often the police thought it would be ineffective, it would be a waste of time, it would be too time consuming, but it's not. And we need to hold these predators accountable because otherwise they're just gonna go on and do the next victim. Right. I'd like to kind of just touch on the title. We, we the title of the, the webinar that we have here is Elder Abuse, Is This the Crime of the 21st Century? So why do you think it, it is going to become the crime of the 21st century? It's all about demographics, Jason. You know, okay. one of the uh, biggest statistics and, and talking points that we should be telling the legislature about is this. By the year 2035, that's less than 15 years, there'll be more people in this country over the age of 65 than children under the age of 18. So we are going to become an aging society very quickly. And as a result, the database for potential victims is going to magnify. So what I'm calling for is more and more resources to be funneled into the aging care arena. But my fear is that as more and more states slash their budgets, and they have to because of the coronavirus right. epidemic, that the aging sector is going to get overlooked. And that's what I fear. And as a result, the predators are going to have a field day because they've got more victims to choose from. They've got more uh, communication to be able to do it through internet and through anonymous means. And unless we gear up, for this, it will become the crime of the 21st century. You know, you and I were talking off air, and I'd like to actually touch on this. We were discussing the different agencies, the, the collaboration that really, it's not just one, it's not your job as the DA, it's it's a combination of, of professionals, mail carriers, et cetera, that it's, it's if you see something, say something, right? It, it, it's so true. You know, I, the, one of the fortunate things for me starting a brand new prosecution unit was I had something to compare it to because I was hearing the comparisons with domestic violence. People were telling me, oh, yeah, I guess, Greenwood, what you're doing is you're starting a program that was like domestic violence 40 years before that, where everyone treated it as a family matter, that it wasn't a crime and, and that, um, you know, you just let people sort it out. Well, the success of domestic violence prosecutions has been built around a multidisciplinary approach. And so that's what I tried to model um, our program on, was involving various key agencies in the community. So, for example, reaching out to every single ER or urgent care nurse and triage nurse and doctor, the hospital discharge planner, the assisted living facility administrator, the mail carrier that sees his elderly client every single day, the meals on wheels driver who deposits meals into the home of an older adult, the bank teller who sees the elderly person coming in and withdrawing $5,000 unexpectedly, the contractors, state license board investigators who are investigating a shoddy workmanship 
uh, on an elderly person's home. These are all key players that can help build a case. So it's not just law enforcement and prosecutors, it's a whole bunch of different people. And the key is to get elected prosecutors in every state to understand this and to be the ones to bring together these agencies in a room and start saying, okay, how are we gonna tackle this subject? And that's that's actually kind of where you are now, right? Since you've retired, you're going around nationally and internationally to to kind of implore people to to have that type of uh, all hands on deck, the collaboration, right? Well, that's true. Um, in fact, last year was a fascinating year. I was uh, I was invited to go speak in uh, Brisbane, Australia, to their national uh, conference because they are in the middle of a dialogue right now as to whether or not they need a crime statute of elder abuse. And there's there's a groundswell of people who say we don't need it, and there are others like myself who say, oh yes, you do, for the following reasons. And of course, this year was all set up to do the same thing until coronavirus came along. So this is why I was so glad that when you reached out to me, this is the new communication medium now. We, the, the webinars that we can share with one another and share information, I think at least for the foreseeable future, for at least for the next nine to 12 months, this is the way in which we are going to be able to galvanize uh, and, and hopefully inspire other professionals to get more involved in the elder abuse community through these kind of webinars. Very good. Uh, last question, uh, coronavirus, what's the impact going forward for you as far as elder abuse cases? What are you, what are you seeing, what are you hearing since you're out, uh, out and about? Well, it, it's so, yeah, it's, it, so many different angles to this. One angle is it's a perfect storm for the predator because mm -hmm. immediately you have older people isolated in their own homes or in their own residences within a facility where family members are now prevented from having day-to-day -day contact with them. So if you have uh, a bad apple working in a facility, they have now basically carte blanche to carry out their exploitive methods against the resident and that resident is powerless to tell anyone what is going on with them. Similarly in residences out there in the big wide world you've got older adults who are now basically trapped in their own home with a younger relative who is not working, who is getting more and more frustrated. Tragically we've already had at least one homicide in the last two weeks in San Diego of a grandson allegedly murdering his own grandmother with whom he was sheltering uh, under the same roof. And then of course we've got this whole other area of scams that are being created out of the coronavirus. So for example, the stimulus check that is being sent to lots and lots of older people, right. maybe they haven't got it yet and they get a phone call portraying themselves to be from the federal government. Before we can send you the stimulus check, we have to check your social security, we've got to check your bank account details. People are falling for this all the time. Or emails are coming in purportedly from the World Health Organization needing uh, details. Or purportedly from somebody who's a traitor trying to see if you've had contact with other people. And these are just scammers who are right. stealing information from older adults. And, and when an older adult is isolated and not able to get out, the phone is their only source of 
communication. So when the phone rings, automatically the elder is excited. They want to talk to the person on the other end of the phone. So when that person says, oh, there's something wrong with your computer and we're having a problem downloading software updates and we need to get into your computer, the, the elder, without thinking, will let them log into their own desktop and download all their personal information. It's frightening. Man, man. Well, Paul, I just want to say thank you. I know, like you said, you and I have been talking for quite a while, and, and I want to hold you for possibly to another webinar down the road, um, because I, I firmly it's believe so that the information. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Um, so let's say this has been extremely informative. Uh, Paul, how can somebody get a hold of you? Well, uh, I think you've got my information there. Um, there's two ways. Um, through my uh, email address, actually three ways. Um, I'm on Twitter. I don't go on Facebook. I think it's dangerous for me. I don't use Instagram, <laughs> but I do use Twitter. Uh, okay. So my handle is pgreenbda. Even though I'm retired, I still like to think of myself as a deputy district attorney. Or there's my email address there in yellow. And if you need to get hold of me urgently, uh, you can text me at that cell phone uh, number. And, and so I'm available uh, to other lawyers to people who are having a hard time getting a report filed with a local police department, or if people just want to uh, discuss various aspects about the elder abuse scene, I'm uh, more than happy to hear from them. Very good. Well, Paul, once again, thank you so much. I, I look forward to our next conversation and, and to continue educating. Uh, till next time, I'm your host, Jason Kotar, with Knowledgeable Aging.